right, we come uh, today to the sixth study in the book of Lamentations. Uh, we're in the middle of chapter three. Pointed out last time that chapter three is not actually longer than chapters one and two. Uh, it takes the same amount of space on the page, but it has 66 verses and it's, uh, it's packed in other ways. So last time we uh, looked uh, at verses one through uh, 24, and today I want to finish the chapter. But to get some of the context, I'll back up and start reading in uh, chapter 3, verse 19. Remember, the opening uh, verses uh, of this chapter are spoken by the man, as he says he is, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. So he's still speaking in verse 19. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause, the Lord does not approve. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. You have made us an offscouring and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare have come upon us desolation and destruction. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord look from heaven till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, my cry, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen how I am wrong. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. 
the lips of my enemies and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their stirring, sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. In your anger, pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Yeah, put as our opening quotation, uh, another one from David Dixon. I've quoted him uh, more than once in his sermons on Lamentations. He's uh, actually he's referring specifically to verse 41, where in our prayers we should look to God in heaven. And he's using that as, as a contrast to focusing on our trials on the earth. And he says, when the tokens of God's anger would hinder us from going to God, look up to God in heaven. For albeit we find tokens of God's anger in earth, yet there is none in heaven. Thus we may get our faith above any impediments whatsoever, and by the wings of faith flee to God in heaven. For his truth endures forever in heaven, albeit it appear not ever in earth. Okay, so there's the the outline for the second uh, part of the book, and it may not look ambitious, but... uh, you look at what I just read, you'll see it really is pretty ambitious. So let me remind you, as I already said, the first part of the book has the, the testimony of this, the man, I am the man and his sufferings. Uh, we pointed out the close connections between the language and uh, really the content of that statement in verses 1 through 18 with the sufferings of the Messiah. And uh, then somehow suddenly at the end of that statement, uh, he comes to hope in the famous verses uh, in uh, verses 22 through 24. Um, your compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So that's about as far as we got last time looking at the man and his sufferings. And then there's a remarkable transition in the book because this one who has just experienced such suffering and has uh, proclaimed his hope, proclaimed his that God is his portion, so given himself wholly over to the Lord, turns and counsels us, turns and speaks to the hearers directly about what you might say uh, his own experience should teach us, so that we in our sufferings should uh, act as he did and have hope in the Lord. Of course, in the immediate context, this is talking about the nation that suffered tremendously under the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians. And uh, then uh, this would be addressed particularly to them to, to consider their ways, what they have gone through, and not to despair, but to look to the Lord in hope. But even as we hear our, our Lord Jesus and think of his sufferings, uh, we can hear his word to us. It's a, really in that way a very striking passage as he speaks to us Uh, as one who has suffered uh, far beyond what we could understand and teaches us about uh, the goodness of God and how we should respond in our sufferings. So that's only the first part. You see, that's why I don't think I'm going to have to go pretty quickly. That's He counsels, and then after that he turns, as the outline shows, to call us to repentance and prayer. And then remarkably, at the end of the chapter, he returns to a testimony of his own experience, but... uh, in a way that's enlightened by the hope that he's talked about. So, without much hope for uh, being able to give many details here, let's let's uh, turn then and look at verses uh, 25 
uh, and following, where the uh, the man gives counsel to those who suffer, who suffer. Why is it that he can have this hope? And how does that uh, help us to understand our suffering? Well, it begins in uh, verses 25 through 27, talking about uh, the goodness of God. And in fact, so remember in chapter 3, Right there, there are three verses per stanza. So 25, 26, 27 all go together. And, uh, typically in a stanza like that in Lamentations 3, the, the verses each begin with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But that's intensified in this stanza because each of those verses begins with the same word in Hebrew. Good. So good is to the Lord to those who wait for him. Good it is that one should hope and wait quietly. Good it is for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. And uh, he actually does the same thing, not in the next stanza, even though it looks like that in the New King James, but in the one after that in 31 through 33, four each time. So again, this, this draws our attention and this uh, literary device makes us want to hear what he has to say and what he wants to tell us is about the goodness of God. Now, I tried to stress that last time. I know it was two weeks ago in our system, but um, he found his hope and not even in his deliverance, but in God himself and who God is and what God does. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. That's verse 24, therefore I hope in him. And that's what that's really the gist of his counsel to us as well. And that's why he starts in verse 25, the Lord is good. Now, if, if you think about uh, the Psalms that we sing, you'll realize how often the Psalms start that way. Uh, Psalm 73 is a good example because of a sort of parallel situation. You know, the, the psalmist is about to say how I almost fell, how I envied the wicked and so forth. But Psalm 73 starts, the Lord is good to Israel. Now, that's something we need to hear over and over again, especially in our fl- affliction. Remember, the Lord is good. And here he applies it especially to those, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. So his his counsel, if you will, in verses 20. 5 through 27 is that uh, in the midst of our suffering, we should think of the goodness of God and realize that even, or you might say, especially in our suffering, uh, we are drawn to look to God. We are drawn to uh, two things. He says, wait for him and seek him. Now, that's kind of funny because those we might not think go together. Wait is a passive thing. Seeking is an active thing. But in the dynamic that he describes and what we'll see in the, in the prayer, uh, those go together well. We, we have to wait on God because it's God's sovereign prerogative to act, to deliver uh, at his time. And yet uh, that doesn't mean that we do nothing. We need to seek him. And he's teaching us how to seek him by teaching us about who God is and, and how we can look to him. And it's those things that cause us to, to hope then. Uh, it's good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This ties in really well with Psalm 37, which I think we're seeing today. Actually, the the uh, the call for judgment at the end of this chapter also ties in with the sermon. So this is not coordinated. Bruce and I didn't arrange this, but um, so again, I want to go fairly quickly over this. But you see how he he speaks of his own recognition of who God is, and he calls us then in our sufferings to keep in mind, to, to wait and to seek. And that's carried on in verses uh, 28 through 30. He calls us to a, a submission in our seeking. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. 
uh, putting your mouth in the dust is a way of showing submission in, in general. And uh, uh, let me just add a comment here. When, when he says, let him sit alone and keep silent, well, you might think of Job. That's what happened uh, with Job. Uh, the keeping silent shouldn't be understood in the absolute sense that we should never call out to God in prayer. That would like contradict the rest of the chapter where he teaches them to call out to God in prayer. But it's, it's calling out to God in prayer in hope, in submission, and in dependence on him. I put up uh, just one reference, uh, Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. It's really a fascinating passage in Hebrews 5 where the writer points us to Christ and his own sufferings. And he says, you know, with, uh, he prayed, he cried out to God with uh, vehement prayers, with cries and tears, and he was heard. So if you think even how Christ in, endured his suffering, it wasn't an absolute silence, but he, he did commit himself wholly to God. He, he waited on God. He looked to God. And I think that's the, the sense of verse 28, let him sit alone and keep silent. So you might say, well, this is all well and good. I'm supposed to, you know, remember that God is good. I'm supposed to uh, submit to the suffering. But uh, really, is there any end in sight? Is there any is there a termination point? And I think that's it's really the reasons that he gives in verses 31 through 33 that uh, sort of give the summary of his argument. And that's, as I said, it's it's for the Lord will not cast off forever. Uh, for though he causes grief, he will show compassion. For he does not afflict willingly. He, he emphasizes here he's giving reasons. And the reasons he gives have to do with the fatherly care of God for his children. He doesn't cast off forever. But that was the sense, just think of the first two chapters or the man's testimony in the opening part of this chapter. The sense was that God had completely forgotten. God had cast the people off together when they looked at the desolation of Jerusalem. And yet he says, even though that may be your sense, uh, God does not cast off forever because even when he causes grief, his purpose is a good purpose. And it is because of the multitude of his mercy. See, there again is the orientation that it's so easy for us to forget in our sufferings. It's the orientation not towards ourselves, in the first place, but toward God. God has a multitude of mercies. And verse 33 is a, a really a striking statement. He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. So willingly, I think the New King James has a footnote, uh, translation footnote, from the heart. So it's actually, uh, you see systematic theologies, they like to refer to this uh, verse and other verses. It's it actually requires a little bit of explanation, but <clears throat> for general. But let me let me just think about it in terms of uh, the children of God. When you're undergoing suffering as a child of God, you can get in your mind the idea that God is just tormenting you for fun, right? He's just messing around with you. He's this tyrant who doesn't care about you. That he's like the the cat that's tormenting the whatever the mouse. He knows he's going to kill it eventually, but he's just playing with it. This verse is saying that's not at all what God is saying. He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. God has a good purpose in what he's doing. It's not his ultimate end that we be in affliction, but it's an end in which uh, he will draw us to himself. He will show the multitude of his mercies. Just to reinforce this point, I, I put up a 
a quotation from the Westminster Confession. This is the chapter on adoption. Uh, I helpfully put part of it in boldface. It's all good, but uh, it's striking. So all the, those that are justified, God vouchsafeth, that is, he grants to be adopted uh, in, in Christ. And then flows from that several benefits that, that come from that adoption. And it's striking that one of the benefits that comes from the adoption is to be chastened by him as by a father. Do you ever think of that as a benefit of your adoption into Christ? It is that God loves you enough to chasten you as a father. And yet it says never cast off. Actually, the the scripture reference in the Westminster Confession is to this verse in Lamentations. Does not cast us off. That's the right way to think of our sufferings as children of God. That's what the man is counseling us to do. When you think of your sufferings, don't think of this this cruel tyrant up there just having a good time watching you suffer. Think of a father who chastens you, but will never cast you off. But we are sealed to the day of redemption. We inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. I think that's a very helpful way of understanding what the counsel of uh, the man is to us, to realize that God has a good purpose. God's uh, end is a good end. Now remember, this is the man who said what we read in verses 1 through 18, right? This is the man who thought that the good shepherd was out to kill him. This is the man who understood tremendous suffering. And yet he calls us to realize the Lord will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Let me add uh, one other comment in connection uh, with this part. This isn't the end of his counsel, but the uh, I should go back to my outline here. But the uh, he adds uh, one other stanza, verses 34 through 36, to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth and so on. The Lord does not approve. So this, you might say, explains what I was just saying, that God God isn't uh, tormenting us. It's not as if God thinks it's perfectly fine for prisoners to be crushed. It's not as if God thinks it's perfectly fine for a man's lawsuit to be dismissed, for justice to be perverted. The Lord does not approve that. So if you think of what the Babylonians did, and the Babylonians did these things, in particular you might think of the crushing under the feet, the prisoners of the earth, Our counselor is saying this is not in accordance with God's uh, preceptive will, we would say. This is not in accordance with what God has commanded people to do. This is unjust, what uh, you have suffered. This is is barbaric, what the Babylonians have done, in other words. He's, He's saying outright that they have suffered greatly. Now, I also want to point out that they did these things within the nation, right? Verses 35 and 36, you can find expressions in Jeremiah and the other prophets that they were doing exactly that to uh, their own people. And so you might say that's the reason why they, God was afflicting them, to bring them uh, back from that to himself. Yet these verses talk about the, the justice of God. Now, let me just add, you know, these are things that, verses 34 through 36, I put up one reference in uh, Deuteronomy 16:19 for this uh, this idea of uh, you know the perversion of justice, uh, subverting a man in his cause that 
that uh, God that is against the law of God. These are things in our days that are recognized as basic human rights. And I mean, as far as that goes, that's not a bad statement. But you notice that it's before the face of the Most High. So we have basic human rights because we have a Most High who rules over men, who made man in his image and has a standard for the behavior of people. And this uh, verse is saying the Lord does not approve. It's actually kind of difficult to translate this whole stanza, but I think the basic point is clear. Don't think from your suffering that God uh, doesn't care about injustice. Don't take that as a consequence of what you've been through. Okay. I know I've been talking nonstop for uh, 20 minutes, which isn't a record for me, but let me finish this uh, counsel from the man, and then I'll give you a chance to to uh, make some comments. Um, then the last part of the council is in verses 37 through 39. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? This is a strong assertion of the sovereignty of God. Okay, in fact, I, I mentioned, you know, systematic theology is referring to Lamentations 3, which you might not think. This is, this is one of the most straightforward assertions of the sovereignty of God in terms of the work of history, both, um, as it says in 38, woe and well-being. You can find parallel statements. I put up uh, Isaiah 45, 7, Amos 3, 6. You can find other statements in the prophets and elsewhere. Uh, When we suffer or when we see calamity in the earth, we shouldn't think that um, this is beyond the control of God as if uh, God was completely helpless in fact, the word that's used is a very strong word in verse 37. Who, who is he who speaks and it comes to pass? So think of the Babylonian king, you know. I speak and it will come to pass that I will take uh, Jerusalem. And it happened. He says, well, that only comes about because the Lord has commanded it. And the word commanded is a strong word. It's used in Psalm 33 of creation. God spoke and it came into being. So this is saying that God is sovereign over all the actions of men. Make the usual qualification. This is not saying that God is the author of sin, but this is saying that when we see the suffering that the Babylonians caused, we shouldn't think that God was somehow helpless or that God had no purpose in it. Rather, it is from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed. Now, that's a comfort, isn't it? It's a comfort that we don't live in a world where the Babylonian emperors can do just what they want and uh, be completely outside of the will of God. But the specific application in verse 39 is sort of points us forward to what's coming, that is, uh, to a call to repentance and prayer. Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? He is saying you should realize that what you're experiencing is a, is a temporal suffering. The Confession and Catechisms make this distinction between uh, suffering in this life, a living man, and the the suffering that's eternal. And we should be grateful that God, as the sovereign one, is bringing about the suffering in this life for the punishment for our sins, because he's correcting us. He is showing us his ways. It's a really amazing uh, application of the the sovereignty of God to, to call us to consider our lives to turn from sin and to seek him. Okay. I don't know whether I'm, how, how we're doing in terms of time, but I'm going to pause and see if you have any 
Any comments or questions on the counsel from the man who has seen affliction? Yes, Liz. did that for us so that we would never be cast off. That's right. right. Yeah, I mean, that's it's our adoption in Christ because yeah. uh, of his righteousness we are never cast off. Well, it's, I yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Good comment. And Dave? In verses 35 Yeah, that's right. I think it emphasizes his sovereignty. Yeah. So verse uh, 35, before the face of the Most High, and then verse 38, from the mouth of the Most High. So before the face of the Most High means your judge isn't an earthly judge. He's the judge. He is the Most High judge. So you should be, you should fear and then obviously, obviously, that's a good point. Um, he does typically use either Yahweh or Adonai, but in those two verses, he uses uh, most time. Other comments? Yes, Marlon. In verse 30, it says, let him give his cheek to the smiter. Is that a, a, a reference to Christ? Yeah, so I, I brought that up uh, last time. Um, it is... It seems clear to me that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is alluding to this when he says that we should turn the other cheek, but it also is fulfilled by Christ, right? When he stands before the authorities, he is uh, he is beaten in that way. So yeah, that's right. So yeah, Jeremiah is the man who's a picture of Christ who's referring yeah. to this, how you should behave, which is another picture of Christ. Yeah, no, I know. It's, yeah, I mean... This is just an absolutely remarkable chapter. Well, the whole book is, but um, I tried to, like I said, I tried to bring that out more in verses 1 through 18, but it, it's, um, it's not as if he's giving some counsel that he has no experience of. You know, he's talking about what Christ actually will undergo. And Isaiah 50, verse 3, refers to the same. It's actually plucking out the beard, but it refers to the cheek in the same way. So a messianic prophecy. So it's all, they're all, it's amazing. They're all clustered around this chapter, or, there are several of them clustered around this chapter. So, so when yep. you study Lamentations, you're actually seeing Christ. In- yeah. So C.J. Williams has written a book. It hasn't appeared yet. Uh, the Shadow of Christ in the Book of Lamentations. Right. So that, that's, yeah. It is. It's a really amazing book. So, yeah. Anyway. If no one else is enjoying studying it, I am, because it's, <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> okay. Let's... Uh, we will do our best. Let's look then at the uh, the rest of the chapter. So the next part in the outline is this uh, call to repentance and uh, corporate prayer. So this closely follows, as I said, from verse 39. Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? 
And then he, he turns and says, let us search out and examine our ways. Now, as I understand this and then the prayer that follows, this is uh, the speaker, the man, um, who is now leading the people in this uh, repentance and confession, confession and repentance and prayer. It may seem a little odd to you, but uh, I put up one reference, uh, Jeremiah 3.22. You can find other references, again, in the prophets where uh, it's as if God, through the prophet, is saying, okay, uh, you're in a pretty bad situation. You don't even know what to say when you're going to repent or how, how to pray. So let me give you this prayer. And that's, that's, in effect, what's going on here. But it also reminds us that, so to go back to the connection with Christ, that the man is always identifying himself with the people. We saw that in, in the earlier part. Uh, and so, although uh, it seems perhaps he was not suffering for his own sins, that seemed to be the implication of verses 1 through 18, yet, yet he speaks for them in confession and, and gives them, as it were, a, a sample of this is what, what it would look like. I think that's a helpful way to understand. So that, that goes uh, from verses uh as I say here, from verses 40 to 51. Okay, this is where I'm going to go a little bit more quickly because part of it is some material we've covered earlier. But when he does this this call to repentance, there are several steps that are outlined here. And, okay, no, this is not like a mechanical thing. You check off the boxes. But it is a helpful outline for us to think about in terms of our own confession of sin and turning to God. So first in verse 40, let us search out and examine our ways. Okay. So as you can expect, the Puritans, when they write on these verses, like they go on and on about this as they should, because uh, the problem is that we don't really want to search out and examine our ways. We have a few sort of pet sins that we'd like to recognize, and uh, we can confess those to God. But the call here is for a, a, a diligent search for those ones you don't really want to talk about. Uh, I think it's trap has this kind of funny illustration. It's like you have some, you have some bad money uh, mixed in with all the good money. You don't really want to know what it is because maybe you'll be able to get it off to other people somehow. It's a kind of a strange illustration, but it it's it underlines the fact that when we are to turn to God, the call is not a superficial turning and confession, but that we would search out and examine our ways. But then in the last part of verse 40, let us uh, turn back to the Lord. So the call to repentance, then a call to prayer, lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. And then he starts to give the content of the prayer. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. So you can see here the steps of uh, not, you know, just turning immediately to prayer. But first, uh, self-examination, consider uh, who you are. As Trapp says, uh, let self-examination end in reformation. Okay. Trapp's known for these sort of pithy sayings. So that means we should uh, think of our situation. We should uh, confess our sins. We should cry out to God. We should turn away from our sins. Now, all of that might seem pretty hopeless if you were in Jerusalem and you saw your city in ruins. But this is why the council that we just had is so important. Because we know God is merciful, because we know he doesn't cast off forever, we can turn and, and call on him in hope. And that's really the, the next part of uh, the prayer. It is a prayer that recounts much of what we've already seen. And this is why I said I would go through it more quickly. You know, you have 
covered yourself with anger and pursued us, verse 43. Well, we could be back in chapters 1 or 2. That's the sort of thing we saw in their uh, lament. They're crying out to God. You have slain and not pitied. So the, the calling on God, the confession and the repentance, doesn't treat the pain as if it never happened. I think that's really important in the book of Lamentations. You can so emphasize the hope, which is at the center of the book, that you act as if it doesn't matter that chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 talk about unspeakable suffering. Okay? The, the hope that we have is not a hope disconnected from our suffering. It's the hope that enables us to look to God even in our suffering and as far as necessary to turn away from sins that we, uh, we examine ourselves and see and, and call on God. And so they do cry out to God. They do speak. Uh, they are an offscouring and refuse in the midst of the people instead of being the glory of all the earth. But notice uh, even it, in that uh, recounting of their uh, difficulties, verses 49 through 51, my eyes flow and do not cease within, without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. He has confidence, and he's teaching them to have confidence that the Lord will look down from heaven and see. And so the prayer has an end. That is, it has a, a, good, uh, a good outcome because of the hope they have in God. It's a striking statement in verse 51. My eyes bring suffering to my soul. What he sees and just the, the tears that he has bring suffering to his soul. Uh, because of uh, what the city has undergone. So that's uh, fairly quickly a, a discussion of the, the way he calls them to turn, the way he leads them in this prayer, uh, and even, even a faithful lamentation that uh, looks like, in some ways, what we've already seen in, earlier in the book. I'll pause briefly, see if you have any comments or questions on that, that part of the chapter. I went over it pretty quickly. Okay, let's look at the last part then. Um, and that's verses uh, 52 through 66. So uh, we discussed last time we looked at uh, Lamentations 3, that there's a dramatic shift to the first person. I am the man. And you notice in verse uh, 52, there is a shift here. Now, the first person has already been used in the preceding uh, stanza, but... Here it's especially striking because he returns to speaking about his own suffering. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. So here in verses 52 through 66, you see the man returning to what was in the first part of the chapter. He's again speaking about his sufferings. But if you like, he's speaking about them in light of who God is, in light of the hope that he has. So they may even be the same experiences, but... He recounts them in a way that now lets us see uh, fully the goodness of God and uh, what uh, God has done for him and why he can have hope. So, I uh, again, there's a lot in this passage that ties in with the Messianic prophecies, with the Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. You might see the I am cut off in verse 54. That's uh, Isaiah 53. Uh, the Messiah was cut off for us. The waters flowed over my head. That imagery is in Psalm 69, for example, a messianic psalm, uh, clearly. 
my enemies without cause. Uh, Christ, uh, that's referred to a couple of Psalms, Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, and quoted in the New Testament. That is, the, the Psalms are quoted about Christ suffering without cause. So again, you, you, when you read this, you get the sense that this is not just Jeremiah, the man speaking, but that he's making us think of the future one, the Messiah, who identifies with his people and their suffering and who will accomplish redemption. So having said that, uh, pretty quickly, let me highlight uh, what he actually says. And it's, it's sort of striking because if, if you take the outline here, you could put it on lots of other psalms of uh, David uh, uh, or Messianic, you know, or direct, even directly Messianic psalms. So the basic outline is this. I was in trouble. I called on you, like verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord. You heard in verse 56, and then you have redeemed, verse 58. Now, what's remarkable about that is that it's so different from what we've heard from the man earlier, because in the beginning of the chapter, he called on the name of the Lord, and it seemed that God wasn't listening. But now, because of his recognition of the hope he has in God, he can wait. He can call on the God and wait, call on God and wait until he sees the end, until he knows that God uh, will redeem his life, uh, verse 58. He has hope. So that that's, I think, how the middle part of the chapter is supposed to shape the lamentation that we express. We can still say, my enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird, but we cry out knowing that God will ultimately hear. It's maybe expressed most beautifully in verse 57. This is basically the only time in the book of Lamentations that God speaks directly to the speaker. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. Can you imagine what they went through and what uh, the Messiah went through to hear, hear that reassurance that God hears them and God says, do not fear. Again, I want to stress that this sort of prayer and affliction doesn't come naturally. Is that obvious? (laughs) It's not something that we would normally do in suffering. We need to be enlightened by who God is. We need to be enlightened by reflection and the fact that the mercies of God never end. We need to hear the counsel of the man. And then we can learn from his now this testimony to think of God's uh, care for them. Let me just uh, quickly talk about the the last part of the chapter. Uh, This isn't the end of the matter, right? So as I mentioned before, it's not like Lamentation says, okay, now everything, you know, the clouds lift now that we know God is merciful. We don't have any more sufferings. Even the testimony of the man doesn't end here. Verse 59, the troubles are still there. Oh, Lord, you have seen how I am wronged. Judge my case. So he turns to call on God for present deliverance. And uh, strikingly, that verse, uh, judge my case, that statement, judge my case, goes back to uh, that statement in, uh, in verses uh, 31, no, sorry, verses 34 through 36, where God, well, God, where God will uh, not allow a man's cause to be subverted. He's basically saying, God, since you are that way, since you don't let justice be perverted, hear my case. And so he turns then to speak of the enemy. And 
again, I'll go through this fairly quickly, partly because this is the subject of the sermon, but also because we're familiar with this from the Psalms. Here, uh, the man is not taking judgment in his own hands. That's the first thing to remember when you read these calls for God to take vengeance. They are calls for God to take vengeance, right? That's the point. It's not that I will take vengeance in my hand. It is that I will look to God who is the just judge, the one who will uh, repay them according to the work of their hands. That's that's a statement of the basic justice of God. And a further uh, point here, which is, I think, implicit, and you can find, again, in, in other uh, other references, is that it is his judgment on the wicked that will bring about the deliverance. That is, the deliverance of the nation is closely connected with the overthrowing of the enemy. So in, in bigger terms, it is, it is the, the final judgment of the wicked that is part of the preparation of the new heaven and the new earth to be a place where righteousness dwells. And that's, that's part of uh, what is going on uh, here. He is uh, calling on God and, and saying that uh, God should pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord uh, so that his people can serve serve God aright. Okay, so again, I, I went over that uh, fairly quickly. There are other interesting uh, messianic connections, but what do you know? I left five minutes for you to ask. Uh, <laughs> if you have questions, ask them, or if you have comments. Any thoughts about uh, the, the chapter as a whole? Further reflections? Mark. Yeah, so for those who have a hard time hearing that, uh, Mark's referring to verse 57, stands out so clearly, do not fear. I mean, it's such a stark contrast with the experience of the people in the rest of the book, but it is it is the fundamental assurance of God. I mean, to go back to his, that's the paternal favor. That's the father speaking to the child, do not fear. And it's an economy of words. I mean, Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you consider, just a second, when you consider, like, I didn't describe this imagery, but the imagery of being in the pit is like Jeremiah in the dungeon, only now the water is filling and they put a lid over it so you can't get out. And God comes in and says, do not fear. I mean, that's because he is the sovereign God. Good comment. I think I saw, did I see Dave's hand and then Liz's? Sorry. Dave. Uh-huh. Of the, the magnitude of all of these sins of all these people, the magnitude of my individual sins, the magnitude of how great God's expenses, what's what's due to an individual? And and your your own utter inability to see the precision necessary to meet out justice. So so he says, treat them according to their works. So he wants God to judge them. But one of the one of the problems with vengeance is proportionality. You you can't see things the right way when you're caught with greed. You you can't see what you've done in the right way. You can't see what others have done in the right yeah. way. And there's no way to to get the appropriate measurement. 
That's an excellent point. And then go back to the sermon series with David, right? So David's reaction was, let's just go kill Nabal and all of his people, you know? So that's not proportionate to what he suffered. He did suffer wrong, but as a pastor made the point, that's not proportionate to suffering. Yeah, that's a very good point. So commit it to God, uh, who will just judge you. Yeah. So Liz, sorry. No, yeah. Follow the instructions until the key that I ever could come back. And he was rescued. That's an excellent illustration, yeah. You do this and you'll be safe. Yeah. yeah. Let a man wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Other comments? Okay. Let's close in prayer.